Hi everyone, thanks for tuning into episode 73. I have an announcement I want to cover before we get to the interview. My announcement is that I will be the podcast chair for the upcoming IEEE Healthcare Blockchain and AI Virtual Series. The online event will include keynote speakers, training workshops, a job fair, and other building blocks. For anyone listening who isn't familiar with IEEE, it's the world's largest technical professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. They have over 400,000 members in more than 160 countries. It's an honor to be selected for this role, and I'll be interviewing key leaders in the space about industry trends and activities. More details to come in future episodes. I'd like to thank Sean Mannion for connecting me with the IEEE Event Leadership Committee. If you haven't already, you should listen to my episode with Sean on episode 62, where we talk about open science platforms and more. Thank you to all my listeners, guests, and fans who continue to support Health Unchained by sharing, rating, and reviewing the show. Although many people may think that blockchain technology and healthcare is really a small niche topic, over the next few years, the industry will slowly start to adopt these new decentralized systems, and it will change how we interact with each other and with our data. Everyone should be mindful of their own health. Hopefully, these interviews provide listeners with a robust perspective on how the industry is evolving and growing. And now for today's interviews, I had the great opportunity to speak with the co-founders of Remedy, a blockchain-based early-stage healthcare company, which was founded in 2017. CEO David Stefanich and Chief Strategy Officer Dr. Jason Cross talk about their journey to building Remedy and some recent developments since the COVID-19 pandemic. One really interesting thing I learned is that Remedy has recently partnered with Clemson University in South Carolina to help manage their students' COVID-19 surveillance testing program. As many schools try to reopen their doors to students this fall, communities need to ensure that they have a safe, secure, and simple way of monitoring any COVID-19 outbreaks. For more details, there's a link in the show notes. I really enjoyed speaking with David and Jason, and I hope you all enjoy the show. Let me know what you think. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today, I'll be speaking with the co-founders of Remedy, a blockchain healthcare company created in 2017 to help the healthcare industry collaborate and create value across silos. And now they're doing some really interesting things uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, which we'll talk about. Joining me are David Stefanich, the CEO, and Dr. Jason Cross, Remedy's Chief Strategy Officer. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so just for everyone to be familiar with your voices, David, can you kind of just quickly introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and give us some context, and then we'll go to to uh, Jason. 
Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. So yeah, my name is Dave Stefanich. I'm CEO and co-founder of Remedy. Uh, I came out of grad school. I'm a trained in organic chemist. I also have an advanced uh, degrees in software engineering and my MBA. Um, I started my career as a research chemist in a GMP FDA qualified facility uh, for several years. Uh, Mid-career, I worked uh, as a CIO for a global automotive company, really digging into global supply chain and uh, traceability of parts and so forth. And then about 10 years ago, I came back uh, to the life science industry, uh, did a stint as a CIO for two different pharmaceutical companies. And it was there I really started to be surprised that I could tell where a spark plug was in a car in the middle of nowhere, but I couldn't tell you the raw materials that are in a raw, uh, pharmaceutical product, which really was the nexus of where we started uh, the creation of Remedy. Uh, about six years ago and then uh, we formed the company in 2017 and uh, we've been going ever since that's awesome thank you for that uh dr cross sure uh i'm jason cross co-founder chief strategy officer uh my, my background uh is in global health innovation law policy business strategy uh, I did a, a PhD in the anthropology of economics, focused on development, and uh, a lot got a lot of degree focused on intellectual property and innovation, particularly in, in, in biotech and other life sciences. I was faculty at Duke University, led a think tank there on health innovation, and spent a lot of time consulting with governments, NGOs, companies, especially in emerging markets uh, around innovative contracting and partnership models to expand access to medicines and devices, uh, improve financing for neglected R&D around tropical diseases, pandemic threats, and so forth. And uh, it was actually that work uh, uh, on the front lines trying to, to get uh, uh, multiple parties to um, not just uh, not just innovate and, and implement new models to, uh, you know, to expand health justice, but to frankly just make more money uh, in these markets as well. And I repeatedly saw win-win deal structures uh, almost close but fall short because of lack of multi-party trust in data. So uh, as blockchain technology was maturing, I went looking for the right blockchain tech partners to provide that missing piece. And and I met Dave, uh, who had automated pharma manufacturing controls quality assurance and regulatory compliance documentation and was writing on the blockchain protocols and it's like presto you're you're the you're the missing piece i've been looking for and while you're uh, improving the quality and responsiveness of manufacturing and supply chains you know i've got a a, a universe of, of global health use cases where we can really improve business models so that more people get what they need and and uh and and the ongoing innovation of, of devices and, and pharmaceuticals is accelerated, de-risked, uh, and made more relevant to the patient. So uh, Remedy was born. Yeah, and you know, I think, um, Dr. Cross, you're not only, you have a PhD, a master's, but you also have your JD, so you have that law background as well. So I think your academic career is really interesting, and I uh, you know, hope the audience also kind of takes notice of that. I think it's really important to realize you know, that blockchain is not just a technology it really is a cultural social um you know revolution really if it's done well done right <laughs> absolutely yep. can you guys just did you t mention how you actually met each other like where and when uh yeah i'll, I'll give you the background so i was working uh, with a continuous flow pharma manufacturing company that was doing some small batch manufacturing 
and we were working up at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University uh, with the Medicine for All program under the Gates Foundation. And we were doing some automated work uh, in the laboratory. And literally, Dr. Cross and I met sitting on a sofa outside of Frank Upton's lab. Um, we started talking. I was telling him about what we were doing about traceability and trying to help Frank and the group bring lower cost HIV treatments to market. And Jason started talking about some of the other challenges in the global market. And we quickly realized that, you know, my practical experience of being in the pharmaceutical industry and in the, in the software engineering space um, really married up well with the regulatory limitations that are in the market. My analytic background, I was able to leverage the, the, the regulatory frameworks that are out there to allow us to do this continuous flow manufacturing. And Jason and I started talking in the hallway and uh, we always talk about it as uh, that was the day words and music found each other. And uh, we've been together ever since. <laughs> well, you know, answer this. Were you guys talking about blockchain on that first conversation or that first day? I'm just curious. Or is that something that came to light later on? <laughs> Dave was showing me uh, crypto mines in his daughter's closet. <laughs> so if awesome. that helps you. Yeah. So about six years ago, I really got into blockchain and I really started reading a lot of papers about Satoshi and, and proof of work algorithms and how algorithms work. Because one of the challenges I was having was data at rest encryption is a key for compliance. Uh, CFR 21 part 11 compliance GMP controls. It's all about change control. And how do you have change control when people have admin rights to back end was, was always a, a violation that I saw. The secondary part is the serialization and chain of custody. So I look at blockchain as, like you mentioned earlier, right? It's an enabler. I had two problems in an industry. And when Jason and I started talking, I had to make sure I'm a big fan of saying you can't manage ditch diggers if you can't dig a ditch. So I actually hollowed out a CNC factory that had been burned out and built a crypto mine from the ground up myself. And that's the only way that I would feel comfortable leveraging a technology is understanding the nuances of it. And uh, my daughter's what I mentioned to you earlier they were the crypto administrator. So my 16-year-old's first job on a resume is crypto mine administrator. And uh, we built the mine. We were mining coin. And uh, we got into the algorithms. And that's where I realized some of the IP that we were able to leverage in the uh, Remedy portfolio was ideated in building the practical application of the technology and market. Wow, that's a great story. Definitely a family affair thing there. <laughs> um, exactly. And David, I know that you're actually a founding member of the blockchain and healthcare global community. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is and how awareness and adoption is going for blockchain in the healthcare space right now? And then we'll get into more remedy and mm -hmm. the details about what you guys are doing specifically in the company. Uh, I'll be happy to. Uh, the blockchain and healthcare group, um, you know, it's a sub-organization underneath the IEEE. Um, I was one of the founding uh, members, along with uh, a few others in industry, and uh, Heather Flannery and uh, Ruth Amos and so forth. And it was amazing. We found innovative people. Uh, Alex Kahala, for example. Um, they're doing amazing things in the industry, but the adoption of technology into the, into the pharmaceutical life science industry, it's, it's challenging because companies have made large investments in things. And, and the worst story you ever want to be as a CIO of one of these companies, from personal experience, is to go to the CEO and say, hey, all that money you spent the last two years, we're going to pull it all out and do something new. Hmm. So there's that conversion cost. And in the regulatory space, 
Uh, Dr. Cross and I spend a lot of time. We just finished up an, an FDA pilot with a Drug Supply Chain Security Act and really educating the regulatory bodies of capabilities as well as limitations of the technology. Um, we find today in industry, it's not so much, oh, I've heard about it. They need to see a practical understanding. And the IEEE group really collaborates various perspectives. And uh, Jason and I typically say that there's three legs to the stool. You have to have the technology, you have to have the understanding, and you have to be able to articulate those into the business value. So people that aren't familiar with the technology understand where that value proposition is. And being in the industry with those others in the IEEE group, we get a chance to collaborate. Um, I know Jason heads up the IEEE IP group related to that same technology. So being able to collaborate with experts in larger industries allow us as an agile early stage growth firm to bring ideas to market in a, in a more of a, a research innovative lab mindset and then more established companies can leverage that experience and that's what we always refer to as remedy labs because we're able to bring things to market quickly and then larger firms which are typically a little slower in their adoption can see the value prop so we really see a cross-pollination going well across the industry um, it's slower than i would like to see um, because people are still having you know, FDA violations and 483s for things that I know the technology will solve. But I think through education and experience and, and real tangible use cases, I think the industry will start understanding and mitigate that risk they're concerned about today. So yes, and I wanted to talk a little bit about IEEE actually, because they're actually hosting a blockchain and IA virtual series. I think it's going to actually be taking place throughout the end of this year, 2020, and throughout 2021. And I'm actually going to be the chair for the podcasting block that they're doing. So I just wanted to quickly plug that. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's All great. Right. Yeah, no, we've been, besides the, the, the blockchain healthcare global, um, uh, you know, international NGO that sits under uh, uh, the IEEE umbrella that Dave described, uh, you know, Heather Flannery has done a great job of mobilizing a lot of the community around in parallel to those efforts of uh, awareness promotion in industry of what blockchain and distributed ledger technology can do. Uh, the IEEE uh, uh, standard working group that is actually in parallel, but has a very different mission um, around standards development is working pretty hard. Uh, the, the official title is uh, working group for uh, blockchain and healthcare and, and life sciences. So um, it, it's, I'm happy to hear that you're, you're going to be involved in, in uh, the, the big series that's going to be ongoing over the coming months. Yeah, I think it'll be pretty exciting and um, lots of speakers, lots of different types of events, all virtual. So it should be interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what has happened since COVID-19 to Remedy. You know, I guess, you know, when you guys first started, it was, you know, a challenge to explain this to people and then get partners onboarded. But then how has COVID-19 changed all of that? Well, I'll give you my take first and, and, and then pass the ball to Dave. Um, you, you know, we when we started, we hit the ground running uh, a little over two years ago shortly after meeting um, and and founding Remedy, uh, some colleagues of ours that were 
trying to accelerate Mongolia's hepatitis C elimination program uh, called us in to, to help and we collaborated with the World Health Organization around a pilot to uh, leverage our, our blockchain enabled technology to uh, track uh, rapid point of care rapid diagnostics, uh, antibody tests, uh, um, confirmatory PCR testing, delivery of Hep C cures, and so forth. And you know, again, at that time, we were we were geeks that knew what those words mean. Now everyone knows what those words mean. Uh, so we did that, and then we, then you know uh, the hard work that Dave alluded to earlier of figuring out all right, what is the uh, what, what how is this is the future of the industry but what parts of the industry are going to adopt first and where do we anchor uh, a scalable product or series of products that can help our company grow uh, and mature as the industry slowly adopts and it becomes ubiquitous uh, and so um, you know we were actually working with uh, uh, around API manufacturing of pharmaceuticals and alternative APIs uh, such as around CBD and some other cannabinoids and providing quality control in manufacturing and supply chains uh, because frankly it was it's a big issue there uh, you have a lot of junk and you have some quality former pharma execs that are wanting to produce quality materials for for big food big pharma big cosmetics and and they need to differentiate themselves uh, meanwhile the, the the pharma and device diagnostic big companies were kind of slowly doing POCs here and there and so forth right uh, then COVID hits and uh, the 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 connected health value proposition of remedy and 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 other companies in the blockchain health space is that the right hand each other are doing it allows healthcare systems to be much more responsive and and, and do what they do best um and and boy did the world wish that we had that in place in february and march so it was actually some testing companies, some diagnostic test companies that worked with us in Mongolia back with that POC uh, that uh, said, hey, uh, remember what you guys were doing with Hep C? Can you do it with COVID? Uh, because, um, you know, a, a point of care test giving a result is much less valuable uh, than a, a smart connected test giving a result to all the different parties that need to know that uh, piece of information in real time uh, and denying access to anyone who doesn't have permission to it, um, coupled with uh, uh, ancillary data such as geolocation, uh, uh, portable, secure identity of the person taking the test and so forth. So um, all of a sudden, uh, you know, we didn't have to persuade <laughs> the way that we had to about a year ago in that sector. And and our connected diagnostics offering that is a whole application suite that sits on top of our core connected health platform uh, just started taking off. And so we started onboarding uh, uh, test manufacturers, test distributors, uh, and uh, turning dumb devices into smart connected devices. Uh, and uh, recently we've really gotten rolling with uh, universities. So Dave, Dave uh, can can pick up both the tech side of this and, and, and give you the story of the front lines of what we're doing with Clemson and other universities yeah and one thing i'd also like to know is if you can explain what you mean by smart connected devices so like you know when i think of a, a pcr test you have a uh, some genetic material you have a gel a buffer you're running it in a lab somewhere um, there's also like art you know real-time pcr there's 
you know, those machines, but at the end of the day, there's a human determining the result. So is there like a, uh, a more sophisticated device that actually a bot does everything? A robot is doing all the work. Is that what you mean? Well, let, let me, uh, I'm going to pick up here on the, on the technology side. Sure. So let's talk about the challenge we have. So I've got an analog device. Let's just call it, I got a serological test or I'm pulling a sample from an individual in market. So the identification of illness in the market is always step one for us. So what we've done is I took a GS1 standard QR code and I embedded some a JSON object in it. And what that does is it puts detailed digital information related to that device. So I now made that device that was typically an analog read once and done into a digital oracle. And that digital oracle then ties to the patient. And the way we handle that is we use a simple um, survey. That's how you're feeling, your PII information, and we build it into it with a SHA-256 algorithm, an encrypted mask patient UUID. So I've got a universal identifier. It looks just like a boarding pass. It sits in their Google wallet. And anytime they're participating in the COVID program, we're scanning that same code and marrying it to this former analog device that's now a digital oracle. So that's step one. Um, step two now is that chain of custody. So it's transfer from there to a CLIA lab for testing, for accessioning into the lab, tying analytic results, and then getting those results back to that, that individual real time is really accelerating wellness and market for the incubation period of, an, of a serological as well as PCR results back to the individuals. And then finally, from an aggregated perspective, because everything's fully anonymized, because there's only a, an encrypted serial number on the sample and a UUID for the patient, organizations are able to aggregate that information, do predictive analytics on it, looking for hotspots, looking for trends in gender, looking for trends in populations, so that they can be peaking around the corner for the remediation of the disease and isolation of the disease. And for Jason and myself, you know, COVID was the disease we were running into in February. You know, we've been dealing with this, you know, malaria, hep C, tuberculosis, HIV, you know, in various markets around the world. So the hardened nature of the platform that allows any regulatory framework to be applied allows us to be a global company as well as fall into the ability to serve a market without having the regulatory hurdles as a barrier we think a regulatory control is a sustainable competitive advantage for companies to adopt and lumping all those aspects together on the base connected health protocol and then the business module, the diagnostic connected diagnostic module was key for us to accelerate that to market. So being able to do that was great. It took us three days to go from no engagement to a full engagement, um, testing 23,000 students at a university because we thought about interoperability, we thought about different access points, we thought about how to convey information in a regulatory framework and just bring wellness to market because that is the value that the universities are looking for. How do we protect our students in an innovative fashion? And that's what we were able to deliver to the university. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that um, initiative or project, if you could. Um, do you wanna share, you know, what the workflow is for you know a student, let's say, and the university potentially? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the student population, um, we work closely with the university 
and their occupational health folks, as well as their modeling folks on what protocol they suspect would be the best to apply to this health situation. So the university developed, they wanted to have all 23,000 students screened in a, a single week. Yeah, can you specify which university you're talking about? Uh, yes, the university is uh, Clemson University uh, in beautiful Clemson, South Carolina. Um, they have an, a very innovative approach of the way they're protecting their students. Um, so they developed their protocol, did modeling associated to that. And what's really interesting about the Clemson approach is that they're actually monitoring wastewater. They're one of the few universities mm -hmm. in the country that monitor their wastewater for viral spikes, and it aligns with the testing program. So this entire program we were able to enable in about three days um, by hearing what they needed to do from a protocol perspective and then quickly tying into their authorization mechanism for their students. So every student has a unique identifier. They also have a SAML token, so a two-factor authentication. We actually consume that and build it into the protocol, which follows HIPAA GDPR standards. So we seamlessly integrated because we adopted the same standard. And every student then has a remedy um, data tote, which is what we call our health passport, sitting in their Google or Apple wallet alongside their digital Clemson ID. Mm -hmm. So the students get notified that they are in part of the 1500 random sampling pro program. Um, they come to us. We walk through, um, you know, following all the CDC guidelines. Um, they we're doing a, a nasal swabs for PCR. And the first step is they show their, their health passport. We scan that, then we scan the QR code that we isolated the analog device into now a digital oracle. And we start that, that secessioning process from that point. So that chain of custody, when it's sent to the lab, processed through whatever device, we integrate back with the limbs, get the result, and then a student is notified, typically within a 24 to 36 hour period of the results. More importantly, we bifurcate that stream to the university because it's fully anonymized. The university has then has the ability to treat the student if it needs to be isolated or not. So that proactive protocol that they're applying um, is really innovative in market um, to the point where uh, uh, Dr. Burks and some others are and myself will be on a panel on Friday uh, discussing best in breed practices and how these will be going forward in market. So it's uh, it's really exciting what they're doing there uh, as far as protecting the students and providing a safe educational environment for their uh, university. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of other universities are going to be looking for some sort of solution like this because, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the news and COVID's not going away and universities are trying to open. So this is sounds like a good solution. Oh, it's exciting. We've, we've received more than a couple of calls in the last 48 hours related to what we're able to do. And for us, it, it really embraces the foundational axiom that, that Dr. Cross and myself formed the company was all about bringing wellness to market and looking at longitudinal life science solutions in market that how do we identify a problem in market, work closely with the clinical folks in developing a therapeutic, small batch therapeutics but ultimately making sure that that therapeutic is brought back to bring wellness to the market. And that loop for us in the Connected Health Platform is really what inspires us and how we can do things and to see the, the absolute manifestation of a vision we had several years ago coming to, come to life in an academic environment where I have daughters in college as well. It's exciting to be part of that cycle. And all these characters throughout our journey over these last few years have all contributed 
and uh, it's exciting to bring them to fruition. Let's get into the technical specs of Remedy. I'm just curious about how it really works. And mm -hmm. for example, how do you handle data storage? Sure. On the data storage side, there's a few attributes that we need to make sure we're, we're picking up as we're going through. Um, a couple of the challenges we had in market is how do I handle structure and unstructured? So I had to think about that in the in the design of the back end, um, because sometimes we have uh, the traditional paper records that exist in the pharmaceutical industry, but also I had those transactional. Layered next to that, we had to think about PII and PHI. And the way that we approached it is I do a tertiary CFR 21 key on every transaction. And what does that mean? Every transaction that's brought into the transactional side for PII, I actually use a SHA-256 encryption key at the payload level. So in the, a lot of folks think about databases as a security piece. I think of every data element as a standalone digital oracle. So it has a standalone genealogy. It has a standalone encryption key. It has a standard life of that data. And in a minute, we can talk briefly about how data ages along with the patient over time and how some of these technologies support that. We also do a physical separation on the data storage. So PII and PHI never resides in the same physical instance. It doesn't even reside on the same physical platform. And that bifurcation allows for BAA agreements to be put in place so that that key can be done. But that's at the transaction database level. The third leg of that stool is I then take that encryption key and I couple it with a public cryptography key that ties that key on the public side to this private transaction. And two things occur. Now I have a twisted encryption DNA for that transaction. So it would actually take three different physical repositories to be um, um, hacked to get keys to possibly even reconstruct the key structure. But it also allows those transactions to be uniquely identified for the serialization of when it was occurring because the public key cryptography is mutable. So that triple key was the backbone of how we store data. Interesting. Uh, so I'm also interested in like where the data, is it on AWS or some sort mm -hmm. of your own servers? Where is yep. mm -hmm. well, it? It all depends on the use case. Um, in some places we're able to store um, data on AWS as well as Azure. Um, there's different regulatory standards by which different location we have. Also, some countries have to have their data res residing in their own national data repository. Right. So when that model, we use the protocol, which is really the guts of every transaction we have. And we can, I can store the OLTP transactional side in their national data center, which still follow the exact same protocol. So the same way to bring wellness to a market, I might need four different testing partners to bring wellness to a market I'm able to flex what the backend structure is depending on the regulatory standards of those places. Now, one of the, one of the key enablers that I wanna make a fine point on is the ability to query a public blockchain, mm -hmm. okay? Most people are like, what do you mean? It's, it's five elements in a header, basic proof of work stuff. What we've done is had to come up with a way to put JSON-based metadata on a public side so we can actually query across disparate data sets. Think of it as a, as a hallway. You're walking down an apartment complex and I hear, uh, I walk by an apartment, I hear music coming out of it. 
I see a poster that says it's an 80s party tonight from five to nine. That metadata describes the party, but I don't know who's there. But if I were to knock on the door and have some exchange of currency or an economic transaction, then I could participate. Hmm. And that is really opening up economic data sharing opportunities that Jason was mentioning earlier by thinking about how and who would consume transactional information down the road should a client of ours decide to participate in that open backend exchange. So, Yeah, that's it's really interesting. It kind of brings me to a couple other questions. So first is which blockchain protocol are you using? Like which uh, backbone? Yeah, right now we're running on EOS. EOS, um, okay. Yeah, and one of the things that's going to be interesting for people that are listening to this is, you know, I'm I'm, I'm percolating about a hundred thousand transactions a minute, and then one of the questions they should ask is, wait, those transactions don't really resolve inside of a blockchain protocol that fast. So we've had to do some some unique things to handle that resolution of those keys and uh, and to work through that. So, um, you know, one of the limitations you hear in market is, oh, blockchain's too slow. It's not too slow if you think about how to leverage it within a regulatory framework and the signatures that you can use. So um, about four years ago, uh, Vitalik put out a paper on plasma interoperability adapters. And, uh, you know, that definitely spawned some ideas, um, reading a bunch of literature related to that and interoperability uh, that we've leveraged in the protocol. And that, that's how we're able to get our speed. That's very cool. Let's talk a little bit about the various nodes. You, you, know, you mentioned how you can have some of these participants join into the network but what are the incentives for them to join and how many nodes are there currently so it's an interesting model so i'm going to answer your question not from a technical solution but from a business solution mm -hmm. because ultimately businesses are looking for market opportunity they're looking for revenue they're looking to fulfill their mission statement so when we have a we have a company let's say they're making um, analog serological devices and we give them the ability and provide them the ability to now have a digital oracle. And because we fulfill real-world evidence data standards, I can take that information and now I'm storing it. And before, their business model was based on selling serological tests. They wanted to produce it, it turned into a pricing war. What, I, what I'd say to them is, now I've taken your current product base and I've built it so that it's an asset you've created, so now you have new revenue models for your company. Okay. So they're like, oh, we were selling devices. And I'm like, yes, but now you've created this very valuable data set that can be brokered across this. And then they're going to go, well, who's going to go buy it? Because our client base includes serological companies, as well as clinical companies, as well as, uh, let's say, therapeutic vaccine development companies. Now I've built an open connected health platform with suppliers and consumers of those various transaction sets that before their adoption of the Remedy platform weren't in the same market, okay? Mm -hmm. So that is where currently we have several manufacturers, several, several organizations doing these types of things. Um, but we also have the client side consumer further down that's doing some vaccine development. They're like, wow, I'd really love to have clinical grade analytics from this market demographic Remedy provides a way to broker that transaction, keep the serialization and the value you created on the data because of the data oracle. If you pulled it off protocol, you lose all the value you created, right? Then we connect them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think just for the audience to understand a little bit better, can you explain what you mean by data oracle? 
Sure. So when a when a so the genealogy of a data point, you can get a data point and you can go, oh, what was its source? Um, if I say the number seven without units, one of my engineering background classes, it's useless. So seven feet means some of the different seven instances. But if you don't say seven feet is what I measured on this house at three o'clock, then I don't have the metadata describing that data element. So when we talk about a data oracle, I think about and I capture uh, real time um, where a label was produced. Um, for example, when you produce a pouch, they, you put a GMP labeling. It's manufacturer data is lot in this batch. Everyone in the industry knows. We take it one step further. We say this label was created at this time at this GPS coordinate. So now I have the origination of the of the element that's going to be giving you a data point. Then during consumption, I'm also grabbing the GPS coordinates and other metadata associated to that. So now I have a genealogy of that data point. If that serological test comes back and it's an IgG and IgM and it's positive for both, I know exactly that digital oracle is a true point of information from the point where it was manufactured, where it was shipped, how it was shipped, where it was consumed, who it was consumed by, was the user trained, so are there SOPs and the work instructions same, so they can produce quality data. So there's many variables around that data point that ensure that data oracle origina uh, originality, origin, and applicability to the regulatory question at hand. And that's what I mean by a digital oracle. Got it. Thank you. That that was really helpful. I think. Um, are you or is the remedy organization issuing any sort of coins or tokens in any way? Non fungible tokens? Uh, no, we we are not. Um, we we look at these open uh, public protocols for its use, um, for the use of mutability and a uniform serialization. So, um, there's a gentleman by the name of. Uh, uh, Diffie Whitfield, who's the godfather of cryptography that I had a chance to spend some time with in, uh, in New York City and uh, having those discussions about how to solve those two problems I discussed earlier, change control and serialization of the data oracles throughout. On the exchange platform, because the industry is young in its adoption and its understanding, having a pure a fiat-based currency model between these entities enables the transactions to occur. Um, staying away from the cryptocurrency side has been a, a smart business move for us um, because when you're introducing innovation, I find that it's great to do it little by little and be sure you're bringing people along versus putting in too much too quick and then it becomes a confusing situation for them. So we just made a business decision to stay away from that since we're not actually doing mining ourselves through nodes. I'm just leveraging the tech for what value proposition it brings to pharmaceuticals, which is, you know, change control, data at reps encryption, serialization. So you're using EOS and you're developing mm -hmm. certain, you know, smart contracts for all of this to work properly. Mm -hmm. Any sort of tie to insurance claims? You haven't mentioned that. Maybe you don't need it mm -hmm. for this specific use case, but I'm just wondering mm -hmm. if that's part of your, your, um, your stack really. Well, it's, it's one of the business values that, um, that we've seen in market. So um, um, Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors, uh, Mindfulness, Tipping Point, and, and others about the emotional need for business transactions. And when, when people have mitigating of their risk and mitigating of their fears, transactions can occur. Okay. So when I look at some organizations, they say, 
oh, I want to put a, uh, uh, I want a safe workforce for my big box retailer, which is great. But behind the commercial side of it is always someone who's thinking about uh, class action suits, risk mitigation. How are we going to avoid these activities or how are we going to get an insurance policy for this individual piece? So there has been definite conversations about by adopting of a protocol using the Remedy Connected Health platform to ensure that protocol is enforced mitigates those things down the road because a company can show that they provided that safe workplace. They followed their protocol. They were doing everything within their commercial and reasonable effort to fulfill the mandate of providing a safe workforce. So we're, we're seeing those conversations happening at the business level. Um, we have not had direct conversations with insurers as of yet. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. COVID-19 has put a huge strain on our healthcare system and on frontline healthcare workers. According to the latest weekly survey by the Primary Care Collaborative, it's also put a strain on primary care practices across the U.S. The recent survey respondents are from nearly 500 primary care clinicians, mostly from Texas, Virginia, Oregon, California, Washington, and South Dakota. When they look at the results, they see that about half of the frontline primary care clinicians say that their mental exhaustion from work is at an all-time high. Another concerning result was that one in five practices report that they have clinicians who have chosen early retirement or left their jobs as a direct result of the pandemic. In a statement, Ann Greiner, president and CEO of the Primary Care Collective, said, quote, the primary care system is fragile and shrinking as we approach the cold and flu season. Practices need state, federal, and private sector support to address disruptions to primary care funding so that they can safeguard the health of the public. Primary care is pandemic preparedness, unquote. Staffing shortages continue to plague primary care practices as both staff and clinicians face child care barriers and other demands. A third of respondents report that their practice has empty positions they cannot fill. 37% of staff and 27% of clinicians in the practice are limiting their availability due to child care needs. 30% of respondents report difficulty obtaining enough COVID-19 testing supplies, including swabs and reagents, to meet their office needs. Another quarter are having difficulty getting PPE for staff and clinicians. One interesting conclusion was that most clinicians believe that levels of telehealth use are sufficient or even above what is suitable for patient care. Only around 10% of respondents report that their practice's use of telehealth is below what would be helpful. Additionally, most payers continue to cover telehealth services to their members. You can find more information and a link to the survey results in the show notes. I know this news corner had no mention of blockchain, and that's okay. But as telehealth becomes more feasible as an option for patients, we need to consider the many data interoperability and security issues that plague the healthcare industry. I hope that we can develop decentralized systems to better handle our health data, consent management, and data transparency protocols that can make it easier and less stressful for clinicians, nurses, and medical staff to do their jobs most effectively. We need to show that we care about our frontline workers by investing in them 
and their workflows, not just thanking them on billboards. And now back to our interview with David Stefanich and Dr. Jason Cross. Let's talk a little bit about data privacy. I know you mentioned um, the three uh, key kind of security mm-hmm. architecture that you've built. Mm-hmm. Um, what can patients expect realistically in terms of their own privacy of their data? Yeah, from a privacy perspective, when the patient is generating a UUID, only that UUID. What is a UUID? Oh, the universal um, identifier for the individual patients. Um, so it's a unique u- universal ID. That's what the acronym stands for. Um, that is anonymized at their name at creation. So any data that's stored is anonymized right at the beginning. On the serialization part, on the test itself, that is also anonymized with a QR code that when that serial number is released to the lab, they have zero idea of who that, in, that test is tied to. All they realize is I've got an order that I have a serial number for, it's a PCR test, and there we go. We're gonna go run the method and return it. When we come back to the user and we tie it back to the, the encryption code, instead of creating users in our application, we actually allow them to use their UUID, which is their QR code, which is stored in their wallet or whatever device they choose to, to store it in, and that key it's very close to the same principles that are adopted in the cryptographic wallets. Okay, So they log in with their cryptographic key, and their name is only stored in that secondary repository that just uses a link back to their PII information with that key. So let's say that you're doing a testing protocol and you're an employee of a company. We notify them that their results are ready by a secure HIPAA GDPR SMS message, which takes them back to the application which they can log into only with their own cryptographic key. So we, as Remedy, cannot even read it because of that tertiary key set I mentioned earlier, that DNA of that data element, as well as the employer. So the employer gets generalized views of their workforce, um, but the individual's information has got three layers of encryption to get back to the marrying of the UUID to the data elements itself. Interesting. That's, that's really cool. And I'm seeing a lot of like, or what I'm hearing is IoT technologies is going to be huge on this because these smart connected devices are critical part of, you know, all of this to actually work properly. Yes, we've, we've interfaced with, so on the serological side, there are a couple prototype serological tests um, that have been, they're talking about coming to market. And one of the questions with the, with the FDA is how are people going to report at home testing, which is not approved. And I'll say that again real loud, it's not approved yet. Um, but because we've developed some advanced machine vision algorithms that if you were to take a, a chemiluminescent indicator on a, on a serological test, which you really can't read with the naked eye, but you're able to capture a picture through your phone and then send it through the Remedy protocol, we can interpret that result and provide it back via that encryption key. Hmm. So what we've done is put together a technology stack which will help facilitate the mandate of our reporting agencies to say, if people are testing at home, are they reporting? Yes, they have to, to get the results, but still anonymizing that transaction set so no one will ever know where that test came from, but people have the privacy they need. So that's where IoT integration really comes in for us. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because you don't want like a disposable COVID test that you could take at home and then, uh, you know, it'll just tell you positive or negative, but then you would manually report it or whatever yeah. if you wanted to or if you didn't want to. With your solution or what you're talking about is the device itself will either you take a picture of it and it tells you what the actual outcome is or the result or mm -hmm. potentially even maybe more in the future, a sophisticated device can just automatically wire up the result to your, your phone or something. Exactly. And, and one of the unique aspects of our application is I did the entire thing in a responsive framework. Mm. So nothing is installed on the phone at all. I am completely agnostic. And, you know, because of the 510, 820 medical device, if I'm installing things on a phone, the phone in essence becomes a medical device. But if I'm running in a browser, because around the world, I'm running seven generations old LGs, uh, we had someone show up at a clinical trial on an old BlackBerry, right? Wellness is for everyone, and the technology is built for everyone. So you never download an app. You never install anything. You don't have to. But that all ties together with how we have adoption in market. Outside the U.S. market, people can't afford iPhones. So how do we take innovation we develop in the U.S. market and bring it to the globe? We think about those things in Remedy because wellness is a global right, in our opinion. Agreed. Can you share a few more customers you might be piloting projects with? Be curious. I know I did see one with ATC Healthcare Services, mm -hmm. which is one of the nation's prominent medical staffing firms. So do you want mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about that or others? I'd be happy. Jason, you want to cover that? Sure. Uh, um, again, you know, one of the leading medical staffing firms in, in the country, um, they, they really came through for New York City. Uh, at, the, at the height of their uh, COVID crisis and supplying the auxiliary uh, medical staff that, that uh, clinics and hospitals across the city needed. Uh, so, so we're really excited to be partnering with them in uh, offering comprehensive turnkey testing solutions uh, to, um, to, to private enterprises, to large uh, sporting events, uh, to there's there are discussions with uh, uh, um, airports and other public transportation facilities uh, ongoing. So, you know, it, it's really with, with their um, on the ground uh, uh, operational um, uh, uh, capabilities and ubiquity around the country um, uh, in our technology. It's a it's a nice match. Nice. Any like early results from those you know initial pilots or anything like that nothing that we can share talk yeah. About. yeah yeah what, what, what we've been able to do is show the demographics um show the population spreads show the where the testing was occurring the, those type of aspects um every organization is, is quite sensitive about what they're releasing to market and how they're handling those uh, aspects internally um What's really been nice is the collaboration back from these uh, companies, universities, employers, et cetera, um, that are taking it to the next level where we'll be able to put additional machine learning AI algorithms on top of it, um, what we're doing. And because every single data point is a standalone element, the ability to have sample populations that are applicable with statistical analysis and so forth, um, we're really seeing some companies do some exciting things. And hopefully in the next week or two, uh, there'll be a few nice press releases related to that and, and how that's occurring. Um, but at this point, we need to be a, a little sensitive towards that. No problem. Yeah, I, totally understand. 
Given the given the you know the pri- private company customer base, everyone's pretty sensitive about uh, third third party reporting on on uh, on what's going on on premise, right? Totally, yeah, I respect that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Remedy team and the culture, and also where are you or how are you incorporated in like mm-hmm. Delaware? Um, sure. Yeah, the company structure uh, we incorporated in Delaware. Um, we started the company originally in uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, in Research Triangle Park. Uh, we have some phenomenal relationships with uh, some clinical companies as well as some uh, medical device companies, and uh, really from that that hub is where we respond. Um, we also have now um, spun up an office in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, as I mentioned earlier, our partnership with uh, Clemson University is amazing in the in South Carolina. Um, it's actually where I live, um, so it's pretty exciting. And uh, my wife graduated from, so we're part of the uh, the Tiger culture, and uh, they've been really strong partners for us. Um, so we run we run our corporate headquarters out of Greenville today. We still keep an office in Raleigh, and we right before COVID, we were working on having a satellite office in New York City. Uh, we have some very strategic partnerships with uh, gene therapy companies, and we're working towards gene therapy data models that'll enable gene therapy innovation to come to market the same way we're doing uh, the COVID work and the same way we're doing the, uh, the small batch manufacturing work, uh, which is really exciting for us because some of the innovative therapies in that market are, are really adopting. So um, that's how we structured the company today. Um, we spread out our development work and our, and our type of way we structured is we keep a development group in Munich. I keep one in Portugal as well as here in the US. So we're covering horizon to horizon. Um, and I really love getting feedback from a healthcare systems that are in Europe where I don't have multi-payer challenges we have in the U.S. Hmm. And with GDPR, as well as the HIPAA folks we have here, and then we always sprinkle in California because it's a hybrid between the two. Hmm. But the team, you know, we, we live as cultural citizens. Um, most of us have gone to college uh, outside the U.S. Most of us speak a couple languages. Um, when I'm in... Uh, when I'm in Benoni, South Africa, and I walk in and people are worried about their health and I can walk in and say Simbono and Johnny, and they're feeling comfortable because I'm speaking to them in their native language, or we're in Mongolia and it's Sabano, we do those things as, as cultural, cultural ambassadors of wellness uh, in that global space. And that's really been a key for us to be understanding of global challenges, being able to live in these markets, um, <laughs> one of my favorite stories recently is I was working at the university and it's inside of this nice big arena and it's air conditioned and it's all nice. And I was telling Jay, I was remember we were out in a gear out in the, in the back country of Mongolia near the Gobi desert, freezing in a tent uh, with a small coal stove. And I was like, you know, doing, doing projects in the U S is so much more uh, comfortable than we do in these other, other emerging markets. Um, but you know, for us, you, you can't manage ditch diggers if you can't dig a ditch. Uh, you can't understand wellness if you haven't been in the markets that are having these challenges that don't have access to things. Um, and part of what makes us a unique firm is we came from these industries. We came from these markets. We bring best in breed that we've learned around the world. Uh, Dr. Cross was speaking in uh, uh, Geneva last year. And, you know, some of the stories we hear and some of the relationships we were doing work in Kenya. And, and Dr. Cross sits on the board of a Cobalt Institute, which is in Ghana. Um, that global perspective on what wellness means and it's not it's not, it's it's a human right but it's not always a right that people are able to exercise and for 
for Remedy, it's it's an important thing that we bring to people's availability uh, globally. And, and Dr. Cross, any thoughts related to the firm that, that I didn't touch on? Oh, no. I, I mean, I'll say, you know, to, to continue on that theme, uh, you know, when we founded the company, Ray, uh, you know, it, it meant a lot to me that, you know, Dave and I you know, agreed that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in this ultimately to, to transform, you know, access to health and quality of health that people get uh, in terms of care. So, you know, one founding principle was we're going to always uh, work, uh, you're going to be committed to best in breed technology stacks, uh, combining the best elements of what's out there for the, the, the end customer, patients, health systems, et cetera. Because when uh, business strategies prevent that, uh, people, you know, suffer and die needlessly, right? Uh, whether it's because of higher expense, less lack of access. So, you know, one, one pithy way of saying that is Remedy's committed to, always making money by improving health, not by preventing competitors from improving health better than we could have. And what that means uh, as a business strategy is uh, aggressive partnering uh, approach across the ecosystem. Uh, it means protecting our intellectual property, but leveraging that to, to combine our proprietary tech with open source tech, public domain tech, uh, third party proprietary tech. It's really about how do we how do we combine the best elements at any given moment to to provide a turnkey uh, best in breed solution for for uh, patients and healthcare systems and and from one six month period to another some of those elements are going to be different right because of uh, the, the transformation in different um, component technologies and so uh, therefore a lot of our internal R and D and IP is focused on uh, interoperability and modularity and that's why if you you know you, you think about uh, where a lot of Dave's comments were around the technology it's it our effort really goes into how do we how do we make our platforms uh, a vehicle for the end customer to always have access to the best combination of what's out there at that moment yeah and i would say that's really great that you're really thinking you know deeply about how to set up your technology stack now because once you start to get more users and you build um you know you're trying to scale the company and there's a lot of transactions happening it's much more difficult to change your technology stack, as you guys probably already obviously know. Um, so that's really great. And the fact that, you know, COVID is a global issue, obviously, you know, that leads people to kind of, you know, understand what you're trying to do a little bit better, I think. I feel like before COVID, people didn't appreciate the interconnectedness between all the countries in the world. Uh, I feel like now, you know, viruses have no borders. So I think that speaks a lot to how we need yep. to change as humans. Yeah, um, we, we were having a conversation with uh, Jose Arietta today, the former uh, CIO from HHS, mm -hmm. and we were having that exact discussion because mm -hmm. people, one of the first projects we did is uh, in the hep C work we did in Mongolia, and we have an opportunity. We're doing a, a hep C clinical trial with a with a um, medical device company that's in, uh, in France right now, and we were talking about hep C problems that are in the U.S., and the way the COVID pandemic, we hope, will address other viral diseases that we can treat in the, in the U.S. And, you know, sickle cell, for example, is, is a huge problem in the western coast of Africa, um, but it's also a problem in the U.S. Uh, hep C, uh, for example, you know, we, we don't run into malaria as much as we do in some emerging markets, but things exist. And protocols and approaches for disease eradication, you know, 
once we help the market define a successful protocol or an approach, to your point, it's unilaterally scalable if we thought about the enabling technology that can be applicable in that market. Um, Jay and I are always talking about we build for around the corner. Um, we, we stay involved with regulatory agencies because we want to know the regulatory framework that's coming around the corner. Because if we can innovate health, but it doesn't have longevity in the market from missing the true opportunity. So you're exactly right. We think of all the regulatory aspects, the technology aspects, the protocol, health innovations. We're continually refining and re-examining who we are and how we're approaching market to make the biggest impact. And it isn't throwing money at a problem. It's throwing innovation at a problem and the technology and the company and the culture behind that innovation to scale. And I think all those pieces together are, are what's going to position us for the longevity to fulfill the mission that Jay and I decided in a hallway outside the Medicine for All program. Yeah, no, that's really exciting stuff, man. I think uh, you guys are doing a great job, it sounds like. Um, but I would like to know a little bit about your you know, competitors in the landscape. I know there's a lot of blockchain healthcare companies probably doing similar things like what you're doing. I've only heard of a few actually using EOS, so that's something that's pretty uh, unique, um, mm -hmm. you know, relatively unique. So do you guys want to just discuss how you see the competitive landscape? Um, sure. I, I think we'll put a fine point on it and then we can get Jay to dig in this a bit. But I really like to talk about, you know, when we talk about longitudinal life sciences, you know, there's companies that talk about healthcare. Okay. So there's the left side of the equation, which is identification, clinical work, identification of manufacturing and therapeutic delivery. Okay. And then there's the healthcare side of our industry. You know, you got the Epics, the Cerners, you've got these large healthcare systems out there. We typically run up until that point. So when I hear about blockchain companies, it's all related to health records uh, for the most part. It's all related to different ways to look at EHRs in general and maybe the interoperability between them a bit from that perspective as well as the insurance side and the financial constructs of it. On our side of the industry, which I just described earlier, you know, we see a couple companies that they respond inside of the industry so maybe they bring along some of the practices that don't allow innovation to be there. Um, they're doing some innovative things um, in the gene therapy space, for example. Uh, there's a firm that uh, we bump into uh, time and time again related to um, their approach towards gene therapy, where we see some of the smaller companies that are bringing innovation to the industry, we align with very well. Um, in the diagnostic space, I really, we haven't run into anyone really doing what we're doing in the connected diagnostic space per se. Um, we've seen a little bit on the quality automation side, but we haven't seen a quality automation side that leveraged the rigor of a regulatory framework and real-time quality assurance, real-time quality control in process, the way we brought those rigors from the industry to all of our process controls. So we find ourselves in a, in a very unique situation. Um, you know, being uh, we've submitted through our master application file with the FDA. Um, we have an internal quality management system that we write software against. Um, I don't know of another software company that follows the same rigor that we do related to quality management from an IQ, OQ, PQ perspective. So there's definitely differentiators out there. And I think our positioning in the market is unique. Um, 
But again, I'm very proud of the firm. Dr. Cross, I'm sure you have a, a slightly different opinion and some thoughts. No, no, no. This it's a great question, and um, you know, for 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 various reasons, uh, most important being uh, the, that stra strategic commitment to partnering across the ecosystem I mentioned earlier. You know, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna call out uh, and diss any specific companies, but I'll say in general, um, I think you'll. Think about think about what we do in two buckets. Uh, you got the back end foundational architecture that Dave did a bit of describing. Uh, that is really about um, data integrity and process controls designed for life sciences compliance across borders, right? And then you've got use case or uh, uh, life science vertical specific. Uh, modules, diagnostics, uh, the the uh, quality management system automation for manufacturing supply chains, um, you know, uh, remote clinical trial controls and monitoring, et cetera, right? These are things that are, uh, you know, application uh, uh, components specific to a particular use case that would run on the same back end. Um, in each of those areas, there are blockchain enabled and and non-blockchain enabled uh, uh competitors doing interesting work um and uh some of some of the use cases like connected diagnostics uh we think uh we we're we're, we're beginning to prove in market um that we're doing things better than some of the ones that are already present partly because of the blockchain component um if you follow some of the university testing uh, news, uh, various apps that are, that, uh, are not remedy. <laughs> um, there's a lot of news coming out about, uh, clever comp sci students hacking them. Um, it, you know, given the tertiary, uh, uh, key management that Dave described, uh, leveraging blockchain, you, you can't do that with ours. Um, so, uh, you know, we think in the connected diagnostic space, uh, we're ahead of the pack, although, you know, there are others out there. Um, and, uh, and, and, where, given our back end, though, um, we're happy to partner wherever, you know, there's a, a, a potential competitor uh, that uh, does some things well and their customer base, um, you know, wants to hold on to them. But uh, the customers themselves want additional features that we offer uh, because they see the, the their legacy systems having gaps. Uh, plug us into the gaps and 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 get further value out of uh, uh, the legacy system that you're already committed to for a three-year contract or whatever uh, by uh, uh, adding our data integrity in the back end. It's that's just might require some creative contracting, um, but at the end of the day, it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting theme that I've been seeing a lot with you know any blockchain company really, but specifically in healthcare, the fact that companies are trying to form partnerships rather than compete against each other. I think what we're all trying to do is grow the pie instead of each taking as big of a slice as we can. Um, and that takes a lot of work. Like you mentioned, creative contracting, not easy, but worth, worth it if, if you could do it right. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, so I have a couple interesting, like, final questions for you guys. Um, what are your thoughts around Bitcoin and whether or not it will become, you know, some sort of long-term asset for for everyone? <laughs> you had to ask a Bitcoin question. Sorry, Dave. Go ahead. No. no. <laughs> so it's it's 
it's interesting. Um, and it, it's, it's a very interesting question. Um, so from a, from an individual that ran a BTC mine for, for several years, um, it was, it's an interesting asset, um, for myself, understanding the macroeconomics associated with cause and difficulty of producing coin over time. I think it's interesting the hidden costs associated with producing the asset from origination perspective. Um, the, the ability to maintain value over time, I think the market is still figuring those pieces out. But I will say this, in the uh, African market, several countries have adopted a digital currency model for several different forms of payment because the lack of a centralized banking system in some of these emerging markets. The emerging markets have adopted digital currency. They've adopted digital identity, digital sovereigns. Um, and I love to see these things moving forward. And, uh, and I mentioned earlier, Alex Kahala has an incredible passion in this space. And there's some discussions we're having about a digital identity, digital sovereignty, and then this ability to have distributed global health and uh, how that will move forward. So I, I see it adopting in markets where they don't have the luxury of centralized banks and centralized controls. Um, but I do see it here to stay, um, whatever form it takes um, from a transactional perspective. Um, I was super excited when uh, Libra was trying to do their, their piece through the, yeah. through Facebook and so forth. And I was, it was unfortunate to see it fall by the wayside, especially since I knew the Libra guys that they bought the name from. Um, oh. And, uh, the and it was a, it was a, it's a firm out of uh, New York, but it was it's interesting to hear those people. There's there's the passionate side of of BTC, and then there's the pragmatic side, but then there's the established side that says it can never be because I don't think the market understands how to monetize and how to do future trading on a, a BTC asset, and that's a that's a challenge for the market to adopt. But eh, my, my two thoughts on that. Yeah, and only time could really tell. It's um, you know no one really knows, but yeah. Any thoughts, Jason, on that? Oh yeah, I mean, on that, uh, you know, uh, uh, from a from a non uh, uh, minor perspective, more of an observer, uh, an economist observer, you know, to me, it, it, it Bitcoin itself it, it seems to be playing a like a a, a reserve crypto. Uh, currency role relative to other uh, crypto ecosystems and and then be the uh, primary bridge to uh, fiat and other forms of of ledgering uh, transactions and value um, uh, my my perspective you know uh, crypto is not different from you know, fiat has uh, you know government backing that in some governments is reliable and others not so much and so forth right so to me bitcoin's a, a a bridge between those two worlds not not a, a categorical break per se um and i i think uh i think as for for various um uh historical accident reasons it will continue to play a, a sort of reserve currency role bridge and a lot of a lot of derivatives uh innovation and 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 he secondary and tertiary 
uh, uh, financial uh, structured product innovation. Uh, now, you're, I mean, Kraken uh, was it Kraken just became a, a yeah. got a bank charter, um, right? right? So you're seeing you're actually seeing crypto uh, 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 trading and and uh, productizing companies begin to blur you know the, the 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 traditional banking world and financial management world and and the crypto world so i i see bitcoin in the long run as continuing to 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 have a, a value anchored on that bridge role um less so on uh, uh, uh on anything independent of broader financial markets interesting thank you both for entertaining that question i have another kind of exciting one hopefully if you had to have a microchip implanted <laughs> into your body, where would you want the microchip implanted? All right, I'll I'll take a first shot at this one. Um, uh-huh. So I, I I think behind the ear, um, only because when I'm walking through, I don't want to get a. I'm not a big fan of getting shots, so I wouldn't see it. And uh, it seems like in every sci-fi <laughs> movie, they sneak up behind you with one of those air guns and pop you behind the ear, and you don't even know what happened. So yeah. I'm I'm gonna go with that approach, Doctor Cross. Any thoughts? Yeah, you know I kind of want to see it. So um, I'd like I don't know I'd like it on on uh, my forearm, um, and and uh, be able to sort of wield it again. Ray, you haven't told us what 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 this chip does. So yeah, um, it's a vague question on purpose. But, but whatever, uh... whatever it does, I. <laughs> I'll wield it. I can wield it, right? If it's sitting in my head, it's just kind of there. So let's yeah. say you can I, use I it to scan. You can scan like yeah, the, and, near field and, scan. And, and Jason, like the control panel, absolutely on your forearm, so you can rub your forearm and then the controls come up. That's yeah. operational side. I'm talking about just the chip side. So I'm with you. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the CIO answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, Ray, and one one side from the remedy side, you know that. That sock company that says, "Hey, after they sell two million socks, um, they have to get a bombus tattoo on their on their body." Doctor Cross, do have an agreement after we can quantitatively prove that we helped impact a million lives that Doctor Cross is going to get the Remedy logo tattooed on him? So, just to make that official, that's that's recorded oh, now. So we're going to hook him up. I heard it here, folks. First here. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing your tattoo. We'll we'll uh, put it live too with the actual tattooing process, so everyone can watch while. Dr. Cross is getting tattooed. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you both for being on this show. I really do appreciate your time. I know, you know, you guys are very, really busy people. So first of all, thank you. Is there anything that I have not covered that you guys want to mention or share with the audience that you think is important for them to know? Um, Yeah, I think from a parting thought perspective, um, one of the things that I pride us on is we, Dr. Cross and our, myself and, and, and Rick, the president of the company, I know we're incredibly approachable. And if anyone has ideas or innovations, I mean, please reach out to us. Um, you know, you can track us on LinkedIn or go to the website, send us a thing. But, but Dr. Cross and I fully grasp that we don't have all the answers. We are entirely open to collaboration, and we would encourage folks please reach out because, you know, we didn't think of Remedy into its totality. We put a mechanism together to bring ideas from individuals, concepts, challenges in certain markets, and we put it in there with best-in-breed folks, and we collaborate with various uh, NGOs all the time to continue innovation. So 
anyone has listened to it think, hey, I can't reach out to these guys and they're not going to get back to me, we will. And that's an important part because global wellness is a collaborative effort. And we just happened to be a couple of folks that had an idea and spawned and, and, and scratched the beaker to catalyze the reaction. And uh, the more more input we can get in, the faster we'll continue to accelerate. So I would encourage anyone to please reach out if you have ideas, um, share with us because we'd love to get the input. Ditto. And, and, and Ray, thank you so much, uh, not just not just for, for, for having us on, but really for for the way that you run this show. Um, we're big fans. And uh, again, it, it, we mentioned you earlier, it'd been a long time since Dave and I uh, did one of these things together. And we felt your audience uniquely would, would understand uh, the, 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 the combination of wacky perspectives we bring to bear together. So thank you for, for giving us uh, this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope to have you on in the future as well sometime. So good luck to you both. And I'll definitely be following Remedy. Perfect. Thank you, sir. Have a great evening. All right. We'd love it. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students, to listen and subscribe. Thank you.